Bibles, Mark chapter 3, emerge. If you got anybody in middle school, middle school's headed that way. Fifth grade and under's up top, headed out the back. You're welcome to let them go with them. Mark chapter 3, you can be turning in your Bibles. While you're turning in your Bibles, I guess I'll share this. Um, Laura texted me this earlier this week. She said that a couple from a church invited their pastor over to dinner. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a story. I thought that was pretty good. Invited their pastor over to dinner. They had dinner. When they got through left, the wife was cleaning up. She went there and told her husband, said, I think the pastor stole our spoon. He said, what? He said, it's nowhere to be found. I think the pastor stole our spoon. A year later, they invite the pastor back over to dinner. Y'all notice it's a year apart. What's wrong with that? A year later, they invite the pastor back over to dinner. They're sitting there eating, and she just couldn't resist it anymore. She said, Pastor, I just got to ask you. When, you remember when you came over a year ago and, and had dinner? He said, I remember. He said, did you by chance take our spoon home with you? He said, no, I put it in your Bible. <laughs> Them sneaky, sneaky old preachers. They're always, always up to no good. Always up to no good. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, thank you so much for being here this morning. Um, I know a lot of you out on vacation. If you're getting to tune in by way of live stream, God bless you. Hope you all have a great week, great trip. Good to have you here. Um, I, I will say, too, because I haven't mentioned this in a long time, and I know we've got summer guests and some been here for a while, but if you notice when I go to read the text, a lot of times several people stand up and several people don't. Well, that's just because I leave everything up to what God wants you to do. There are preachers who say, if you would stand for the reading of the text and they have you stand for the opening scriptures and there are others who don't. And I want you to know it really doesn't matter to me either way. Standing doesn't make you any more holy or any less holy. Sitting doesn't make you any more holy or any less holy. But I do believe that everybody has their own place with God. And I believe that some people want to stand for that opening scripture. And I'm just saying to that, I've not covered that in a long time, so I want you to understand why some people stand and some people don't. So if you're one of those that like to stand for the reading of the opening text, well, here we are, Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says that he entered into the synagogue. There was a man there which had a withered hand. They watched him, talking about the Pharisees, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. He saith unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. He saith unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. When he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. The Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel against with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. I want to look for a few minutes this morning at a message on the God of mercy. God, thank you so much. Thank you for the name of Jesus. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the healing of Jesus. Thank you for the power of Jesus. Thank you that in the name of Jesus, every knee bows. Thank you that in the name of Jesus, every demon has to flee. Thank you that in the name of Jesus, sickness can be healed. Thank you that in the name of Jesus, marriages can be mended, homes can be restored, and things can be made whole. God, we thank you for the precious name of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this precious book, the love letter that your own sweet Holy Spirit wrote and handed down to us, God. I pray you'd take this book this morning. I pray, Father, would you speak through me, God? I do ask for your anointing, God. I pray not to be sounding brass or tinkling cymbals, and that's all I would be to speak on my own authority, God. I pray you'd take your word and speak to these, your people, your children. And God, I pray that you'd move according to your own perfect will, according as each one has need. God, I pray you'd teach us something. I pray you'd help us to be better servants for you, God. I pray you'd meet each person in their valley, each person on their mountain. I pray most of all that you be pleased with all that we do. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, guys, so much. You know, mercy... Mercy is not just a New Testament thought. God has always been a God of mercy. As a matter of fact, the word mercy is used 261 times in the Word of God. 202 of those 261 times are in the Old Testament. If you look into the Psalms, the psalmist uses the word mercy 100 times in the Psalms alone. So we see that the word mercy is God from the beginning. That's not what just come about through Jesus. Proverbs 3.3 3 says that, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. 
Write them upon the table of thine heart. So I want to look at this text for just a few minutes this morning in, in this story because here we have a God of mercy, and his mercy here in this story it is visible to everybody. We have the Pharisees gathered in the synagogue. We have the Pharisees, the religious crowd who are gathered in the church here present, but, but they're showing mercy to no one. Verse number 2 tells us that again, it's on the Sabbath day. And again, the Pharisees are watching. They're trying to find something to accuse Jesus of. There's a man present here. His hand is withered. That hand has never developed and it is no use to him. And Jesus sees the man and, and he sees the man in need and he wants to help the man. But he also sees the watchful eye of the Pharisees. But more importantly than the watchful eye of the Pharisees, Jesus sees the hardness of their hearts. It, it's not this that's the main problem. This is coming from what's inside here. Jesus is not here to look for a confrontation. He doesn't come into the synagogue on this morning to try and stir up trouble. He's not trying to make the Pharisees look bad. He's not trying to, to come in and intimidate the Pharisees. He's sure not there to infuriate the Pharisees. Jesus is just trying to help Everyone present here in this scene. So he calls this man with a withered hand. He brings him out center stage. He says, I want you to stand right here in front of everyone. And then he says, let me ask you a question. I know you Pharisees are watching. I know the intent of your heart. I know you're just looking to stir up something. Let me ask you a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? I mean, if you're sitting on the bank of the river, the river, it's the Sabbath day. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. You're sitting there doing nothing, and you see upstream right there that somebody slips and falls into the river, and they're drowning. You have the capacity to help them, and you walk over and say, Hey, buddy, I'd help you if it wasn't a Sabbath day. I'm sorry, man. you got to go. Is it right to help somebody? If you look out your window and you see a little fire kindling on your neighbor's house, is it okay to run out and take the water hose and put it out? Or like, man, if it wasn't a Sabbath day, I sure could help them. Or even worse, see a big fire burning a house and you have the capacity to run across the yard dialing 911 to ask for help and get them out of their house. But you go, man, if it wasn't a Sabbath day, I'd save their life. What if it's your own child? You're sitting in the house. It's a Sabbath day. You're doing nothing. You're just sitting there, and your son gets up to go to the bathroom, and he falls down the stairs, and he hits his head. It knocks him out, and a big old knock comes up, and you go, boy, I hope he lives till tomorrow when we go to the doctor. That, that's what Jesus said, as silly as it sounds. What he's saying, is it good to do good on the Sabbath day? He said, of course it is. It's always right to do right. Matthew records in chapter 12, verse 11, that Jesus said, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? If it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold, and, uh, hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Then he saith to the man, same story, stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it out and it restored whole like as the other. And the Pharisees went out and held counsel against him how they might destroy him. The problem is Jesus here knows full well is not with the law of the Sabbath. It is with their ignorance of the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has come to let them know that he is Lord of everything. It says, but they held their peace. That they couldn't argue with him at this point, but they sure weren't going to admit that they were wrong. So, so they held their peace. There's three things that set the Jews apart from the rest of the world. One, they have the right of circumcision. We know that from the Abrahamic covenant, how God made the covenant about the circumcision of the foreskin, and that was given there to him. And I will just plug in right there that the promise made to Abraham and the children of Israel through the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise, is not a broken promise. It's not a broken covenant. It will be done. We are living right now in what is called the postponed kingdom. There's a time coming, Jesus Christ. Christ is coming back, and all God's children said amen. I agree. Can't wait. The day's coming, and when he comes, he's coming to get me. He's coming to get all those that are washed in the blood of the Lamb of God, all whose name has been written in glory, but he will set up the kingdom. The kingdom age is yet to come, and he's not forgotten them. It's just postponed for the moment. But then they have, there in the book of Leviticus, they're given laws about things that they could and couldn't eat. And it's about cloven-hooved animals versus chewing the cud. There's some animals that they can't eat. There's some animals that they can't eat. Those things are there. But then they have the weekly observance of the Sabbath. It was given in the law of Moses. Th these things are, are given to the children of Israel. Matter of fact, that particular one about the Sabbath is a big enough deal that in Numbers chapter 15, a man is stoned to death for picking up sticks. And the Pharisees try to use that as, as part of their arguing case. But all these are given to the Jew. 
and they're given to the Jew alone. Number one, they were never given to you and I as a Gentile. All this is Abrahamic promise, Abrahamic covenant, um, Levitical laws, laws given to Moses, has nothing to do with you and I from, from the beginning. But, but what has happened here is, is the, the religious elite has taken these and they've added all these things of their own. They, they've added all their own stipulations to it. And they're not about to let this man from Nazareth come in and mess up their traditions. So while these things are given in the laws of God and given to them by God, they, they've added countless rules and countless regulations to the Mosaic law. They've added the things that they need to add to keep them in control. They've taken the law of the Sabbath. They've, they've placed their ideas on it. And so now they're watching Jesus, the son of the living God. They're just looking for some things to accuse him of. You know, Jesus already caught him off guard one time. You know, when he healed that demoniac, cast the demoniac out on the Sabbath day? He already caught him off guard one time. And, and then they tried to catch him off guard because they saw him and the disciples plucking a few grains of corn to get something to eat. And they tried to accuse him, but he caught him off guard again when he sat there in Mark chapter 2 and verse 25. Have you never read what David did? When he had need and was unhungered, he and they with him. It says how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. He said in them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, here they are again in another Sabbath day. You've got this man <coughs> with the withered hand, and Jesus calls him out center stage the man doesn't ask for anything there, there's not any questions brought out by him it's jesus that calls him and says you come stand right here in front of everybody because i want everybody to see this you know he, he could have whispered to the man hey bud hey you meet me out back right after church i'll take care of that hand for you you know you got these pharisees you got this religious crowd around here man you know how much they i don't feel like messing with them today but if you meet me out back when they all get out of the way with all their highfalutin cells and all their high. You, you just meet me out back. I'll take care of the hand for you. And Jesus says, oh, no, there won't be none of that. He said, come on up here, right out, right out here on the stage in, in front of everybody. He could have put the man even up in front of everybody. This could have been a test of the man's faith to see if he had faith to be healed. But Jesus here in this story, Jesus is not looking for the faith of one. He's not looking to identify the faith of one. Jesus is trying to build the faith of everyone. So he calls the man up and he has compassion. But can I tell you in this story, Jesus doesn't just have compassion on the man with the withered hand. Jesus is doing this because Jesus has compassion on everybody. Jesus is doing that because he has compassion on the Pharisees, the unbeliever, and everyone present. So he has the compassion on the man with the handicap, obviously because he has a handicap. But he has compassion on the Pharisees because of the condition of their soul, because of what's inside. And he knows that what's inside is what is going to lead the, their eternal destiny. That's what's going to drive it. So it's the soul that Jesus is worried about. So he, so he brings this man up center stage, and he says, You tell me, is it right to do right? On the Sabbath day. Well, they knew it was right to do good. They, they certainly can't argue that. But they're not going to let this man prove them wrong. So they just remain silent. Not a good silence. This is a silence of rejection. This is a silence of hatred. This is a silence of, of bitterness, of anger. Our text says in verse number 5 that when he looked round about them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, not one other person there is concerned about this man with a withered hand. Not one other person there shows any compassion. They would rather see this man living in this state. They would rather see somebody drowned in the river, watch the neighbor's house burn down, see their child fall and, and get hurt. They'd rather see that than, than to do good on the Sabbath day because they're so bound in this religious order. They're too worried about their own set of rules and having their own authority questioned. Those that were present in the synagogue that day, there would have been lots of other people around. They would have been afraid to say anything because they know if they come up against the Pharisees, the religious elite, they're going to get cast out of the church. They don't want to do that. So, so nobody says anything. So we see Jesus says that he's angry. Well, he's angry because they're more concerned about their laws and about their traditions than they are about helping somebody. But it also says that he's grieved. He's grieved because of the hardness of their heart. And he knows that if that doesn't change, that their eternal destiny is hell. And Jesus knows that he's the one there that can fix all that. He's the one that can change all that. 
but, but he's grieved because of the hardness of their heart. So he brings in center stage, verse, th- verse 4. He said, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, good evil, to save to kill, but they held their peace? When he looked round about them with anger, but being grieved with the hardness of their hearts, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was restored, whole as the other. Think about the man. I mean, he didn't ask for nothing. I relate this man to being exactly the same as the beggar that sat at the gate of the temple called Beautiful when Peter and John was going into the temple. That man got up that day, some family member, somebody carried him, dropped him off at the gate. He's sitting there asking for alms. He wasn't expecting to walk before the sun set that day. He wasn't expecting anything great. He wasn't expecting anybody to pass by. He wasn't expecting in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He wasn't looking for any of that. He just got up. It's just another day. And so somebody passed by with the power and authority of the name of Jesus. Is it the name of Jesus? Wonderful. This man, he just got up that morning. He's just coming to church. I mean, he's just a church member. He's not planning on being center stage. He didn't come here to to be the center of a debate. And and here he's got a problem. See, if he sides with the Pharisees and Jesus is legit and can heal him, he loses the ability to be healed. But if he sides with Jesus and Jesus can't heal him, now he's going to be kicked out. He's going to be excommunicated from the synagogue, and he can't come back there anymore. It's no wonder he doesn't say anything. I mean, I like saying between a rock and a hard place, but he truly is between the rock and some knuckleheads. So he doesn't say anything, but, but here's the truth. He has a need, and he doesn't have to do anything for the need. Jesus sees the need, has compassion on him, and Jesus takes care of the need. So Jesus did something great here, but because of their religious traditions, we find two of the worst phrases possibly in all the Word of God. Against him and destroy him. The one who healed the sick. The one who made the lame to walk. Blind to see. Deaf to hear. Mute to speak. The one who raised the dead. The one who holds all things in his hand. Sprinkled stars throughout all the heavens. The the one that has a love that no man can begin to understand. It, It says that they were against him. And they sought to destroy him. In this story, there's a choice that has to be made by everyone, even the man with the withered hand. Even though he doesn't ask for help, he still has to make a choice. Matter of fact, he doesn't say anything at all. But here's what Jesus said to him. And I don't know, maybe it's a play on words. I was reading it. I looked at this, and I did a little bit of study, and I wasn't the only one that kind of saw it this way. Jesus does not tell this man to be healed. You look at it, you got it right there in your Bible. It's right next to the spoon. Jesus doesn't speak to the hand and tell the hand to be stretched out. Matthew 12, then saith unto the man, Jesus said, stretch forth thine hand. Mark chapter 3, saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. Luke chapter 6, he said to the man, stretch forth thine hand. He said to the man, stretch forth your hand. Now the man's got to make a choice. Well, do I explain to him if I could do that, I already would have? Do I explain to him that I was born this way, that I can't stretch my hand? Or do I try to stretch it and, and let him see that it doesn't work? Or do I just do like he says and just stretch forth my hand? So we see that he had enough faith to do what Jesus said and stretch forth his hand. Let, let me ask you something. Why was the man here in the first place? He, he's not there as a trick of the Pharisees, Right? We know because of the Scriptures that many times that the Pharisees do things to try to trick Jesus. We know that, right? They bring him, they set things up to try to catch him off guard, to try to catch him in a trap. But every time they do that, the Word of God tells us about that, that they're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to tempt Jesus. They're trying to catch Jesus. Well, the Word of God doesn't tell us that here. So he's not brought here by the Pharisees besides that. If the Pharisees had brought him here to trick Jesus, the Pharisees would be questioning Jesus, not Jesus questioning the Pharisees. So the Pharisees didn't bring him here. So why was the man here? He obviously didn't come to be healed. If he had been healed, he'd have been like blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He'd have been crying out. He'd have been screaming, God, can you heal me? He'd have come forth. He would have been the one speaking. But he's not there. If he was there to be healed, he would ask for it. So if it's not a trick of the Pharisees and, and he's not there to be healed, then... Why is he there? 
Well, what about this one? Why is Jesus there? Jesus isn't there to do a miracle. Jesus can do a miracle anywhere, anytime. He didn't have to come to the synagogue. He didn't have to do it on the Sabbath. Jesus did not come here to do a miracle. He, he, he wouldn't have had to have had a debate with the Pharisees if he was there to do a miracle. He would have simply called them out and done the miracle. So why is Jesus there? He's there to teach. He's there to teach everybody in the synagogue something. Now, if Jesus was there to teach, why is the man there? He's there to learn. The man came to the house of God. He came to the synagogue to learn something. If you look in the Word of God, you see the multitudes gathering around Jesus. They're not gathering around to see miracles. They're gathering around to hear him teach. When Jesus teaches is when it draws a crowd. Matter of fact, we looked two or three weeks ago at where Jesus fed the, the multitudes, the, the 5,000 plus women and children with the five barley loaves and two little fishes. And, and we looked at that. They didn't come gather around for the miracle. They didn't come gather around for the feeding because they didn't even know that was coming. They came because Jesus was teaching. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus, when he came out and saw much people, was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Jesus came to teach. The man came to learn. Jesus takes advantage of the day here to teach him about what the Sabbath truly is. And, and even the synagogue, we just saw it there in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So here in chapter 3, Jesus has come to synagogue to teach. Now, let's look for just a minute at, at this day. Genesis chapter 2, verse number 1 says that the heavens and the earth were finished in the host of them. So God has finished all of his work. He's made all that there is. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. God said that he rested on the seventh day. He rested on the Sabbath day. And then for at least 2,500 years, we don't hear another word about it. God doesn't say anything else about the seventh. He doesn't say anything else about the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, it's not until after, after the children of Israel are sold into the bondage of Egypt or after they're caught there and they become the Hebrew nation. It's not until after God uses Moses to bring them out and part the Red Sea. It's after that, when they're looking for something to eat and they're hungry, that God said, for six days I'm going to put manna on the ground. It's going to be the bread of heaven. Every day you go out and gather enough for today and today only. Don't put any up thinking you're going to have some for tomorrow. you got to trust. Oh, man, somebody's going to need this right here. you got to trust me today. Don't worry about gathering for tomorrow. You ain't got there yet. you got to trust my provisions right now. I'm going to give you enough for today. I'm going to put enough grace in your, in your life for today. I'm going to pour an abundance of mercy on you for today. I'm going to give you just enough healing to get you through today. I'm going to give you just enough power for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. You go out and get what you need for today. When tomorrow comes, I will have your blessing on the ground again. He says, however, on the sixth day, I'm going to put double the blessings out for you. And you gather enough for the sixth and the seventh day. Because what God says on the seventh day, I'm going to rest. And so are you. On the seventh day, I'm not putting the manna on the ground. So on the sixth day, when you go out, you get enough for both days. He says, Exodus 16, 26, six days shall you gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. God's rest for the Sabbath for six days. Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. Again, he's dealing with the Jew. He's giving them to Moses. He's writing them on tables of stone, tablets of stone with his own finger. And the first four that he gives him deals with man's relationship with God. He said, first and foremost, right out the gate before we get anywhere else, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm a very jealous God, and if you got anything in your life that means more to you than me, I'm going to have a problem, and you're going to know about it. Thou shalt make no graven images. Don't, don't whittle up a piece of wood and put it in your pocket and call it a God. 
Don't put anything else. I am your God. I'm the one that, can, that, that brought you out. I'm the one that delivered you. I'm the, water, the one that gave you manna. I'm the one that sprang the water from the rock at Horeb. I'm the one that's going to part the Jordan River. I'm the one that's going to deliver the promised land. I'm the only one you need. Don't try making anything else. But you better pay attention to this one. Don't be using my name in vain either. You will not be held blameless if you take the name of the Lord God in vain. But then he said, this is now a commandment. The fourth one, Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. Six days shalt thou labor, do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt, do, thou shalt not do any work. Thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, thy cattle, nor thy stranger, nor anything anywhere within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the, seventh, the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That is a law between God and the Jew. It has nothing to do with worship. It has nothing to do with coming to church. It has nothing to do with singing. It has nothing to do with preaching. It has nothing to do with a Gentile. This is given to the Hebrew nation that, that on, the, on the seventh day. So the Jew is set apart as God's people. During the dispensation period of the law, somebody, we need to really be thanking God that Jesus Christ showed up, fulfilled the law, and brought us in that other sheepfold and brought us into the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. By the time Jesus came, the religious crowd has put so many man-made laws around the Sabbath and the synagogue here that even the one who made the law himself can't keep the law in their eyes. Even the one who made the synagogue, made all things, designed the temple, the tabernacle, the one who put everything into motion, even he can't keep it according to them. The Sabbath day was the seventh day to be observed by the Jew. Now, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has fulfilled that law as well as the others. Jesus gave us Two commandments. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are the New Testament. We are that other sheepfold. He said, here's yours. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second one for you is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He told us, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love one for another. So right here, he gives us two commandments, and he says on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophet. He doesn't have to bring the Ten Commandments over because if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to kill him. If I love God, I'm not going to use his name in vain. If I love God, I'm going to worship him and none other. I'm not going to be carrying rabbits floating around in my pocket hoping it does something good for me. So, so he says, if you keep these two, you won't have any problem with the other ten. Because these, these will guide everything. Now, we know we know from the words of Jesus there in Matthew 24, 20, we know that the Sabbath will be reinstated. We know that it will come back around during the tribulation. We know from Isaiah 66, the millennial kingdom's coming. There will be a thousand-year millennial reign. We know that the Sabbath will be reinstated as God fulfills the, the kingdom. That will be the kingdom age. But today we're living in the church age. We're living in the dispensation period of grace. Thank God. Thank God for grace. Jesus Christ rose from the grave being the first day of the week. The Holy Spirit, after the seven weeks of seven, after the Feast of Weeks was over on the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, showed up being the first day of the week. Church began on the first day of the week. So what we find is that we are to gather and to worship Him in one accord as the family of God on the first day of the week. Hebrews tells us, chapter 10, verse 24, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's a whole host of messages you can preach around that, but I can just simplify it right there that there's a lot of other different angles, and a lot of people put a lot of different things on it. But point blank, it says that if we love God, we ought to worship God. It, matter of fact, I shared with it on Wednesday night. I read what somebody said. Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to paraphrase it because the quote, and I don't remember exactly what it said, but he said, Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he died for it. 
You can't say you love the Lord if you don't love his church. You can't say you love the Lord if you deny his church. You can't say you love the Lord and the Lord's people if you do not come to his church. The Sabbath being the seventh day commemorated the completion of creation. But the first day being Sunday commemorates the completion of redemption. Whoo! Thank you, Lord, for the redeemed. Now, the church of today, I'm either going to make some people happy or ruffle some feathers, but it's okay. The church of today has done the same thing that the Pharisees did to the synagogue. They have added so many legalistic rules and, and rules and restrictions that, and, and trying to uphold their own reputation that, that if Jesus Christ himself came in, they couldn't keep it. Jesus couldn't keep it in their eyes. Matter of fact, somebody told it as a joke. I'm sure you've all heard it. It really ain't a joke because it's too close to being true to be funny. About the man that was at the door, he was dirty, homeless, smelled bad, and he's looking in the church, and the stranger walked up and said, why don't you go in? And he said, they won't let me in. Turns out the stranger was Jesus, and he said, don't feel bad, they won't let me in either. That, that's kind of reality where the, the church is a lot today. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of, of grace. God is a God of long-suffering, and, and God calls for his church to be like him. See, I... I've told you a lot of times that, that I grew up in a Pentecostal church. But I, I'm here to tell you, the more I study, the more I learn, I, I grew up in a lot of religion. I've got two or three people agree with me. I grew up in a lot of religion. This ain't nothing against my mom. My mom's as godly as anybody I ever knew. And, and my family, my whole family's sitting here, and it's got a lot to call the, call the mom. But mom, mom taught me something and enforced something on me, to be honest, it was enforced by a preacher, but I don't sit in the Word of God. See, I was never allowed to fish on Sunday. Anybody not allowed to fish on Sunday? Just true. I was not allowed to fish on Sunday. But, but wait a minute. We, we got to decide where we're at if we're obeying the commandments of God. The Sabbath day was the seventh day, and it was a law given to the Jew. We're in the New Testament church age dealing with the first day. So where does going fishing have anything to do with not keeping the Sabbath day back in the Old Testament? I'm just telling you, we've brought a lot of laws over, and we've strapped a lot of things to men that don't belong. Now, my mom had one thing right. See, when I got where I could, I started fishing pro-circuit bass tournaments on Sunday. It doesn't say you can't fish on Sunday, but it does say you can't forsake the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is. So whatever you do when church is over today, God bless you. I hope you catch a mammoth and it feeds your family for a month. But right now you need to be in the house of God. But what we see is that they brought stuff over. I mean, you know, for, for women, they, they could not wear pants. Matter of fact, the dresses had to drag the ground. No high heel shoes, couldn't cut or color the hair, had to be up in a bun on top. Couldn't wear jewelry or costly apparel. That was sinful. Couldn't wear makeup because that was to paint their faces adorn themselves. If you wore makeup, you were going to hell. I told y'all, Pastor Ike Riker, New Hope Baptist, Robin will start laughing for him. Said He used to say, they say it's a sin for women to wear makeup. He said, I say it's a sin for some women not to. That we, we've taken that Old Testament stuff and we've, and we've drug it over on men. It was no different. On, on men, your hair had to be cut right. You had to wear a certain way. Matter of fact, I'd go straight to hell right now for what I'm doing standing right here on this pulpit. I'd have to go to hell. I got green stripes in my shirt. You think I'm kidding? Even as a preacher, I carry, Robin will tell you, when I travel and preach, I carry two shirts. I'd carry a white one because there's churches that won't let you step on their pulpit if you don't have on a white shirt. And that stuff's just straight up strict religion. Find me that in the Word of God. Show, show, I'm just telling you that we put a whole lot of laws into stuff. We put all of these things in. I'll give you a couple more. Talk to somebody about it on Wednesday night. If you got tattoos or you got piercing, you might well get up and go home, live however you want to, because you're going straight to hell. That's what they said. That's what they said. You couldn't have any of that stuff. You're condemned. Let me tell you something. Somebody in here stand up and show me a tattoo that the blood of Jesus Christ can't watch off. 
Somebody stand up and show me your sin that is so big that God can't. I'm not saying your tattoo is a sin. I'm taking what they said. Show me your sin that is so big that God can't erase it. Show me somebody in here that your name isn't covered under whosoever, that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Find somebody in here. Somebody stand up and tell me what you did that God can't forgive. Stand up. Tell me what you've done that the blood of Jesus Christ can't erase. You don't have it. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth all sins. I'm just telling you, I grew up in a bunch of strict case religion, and now the more I look back, I ain't blaming nobody. I made my choice. I ran from the church. I ran from that. But the more I look back, I ran from religion because I could not keep their law. I prayed on Sunday, and I shed tears in an altar to be saved. And I did the same thing on Monday. By Wednesday, I knew I was going to hell again. And there never was any comfort in what I had because of all the law. The church today isn't really any different. They say, hey, if you want to come to this church, you got to look like me, act like me, walk like me. And talk like me, dress like me, because if you're going to be, if you're going to get into heaven, this is how you got to look. That's a dangerous place to live. But when you look in the mirror before you come, you look at a picture of me and you look in the mirror before you come. If you don't look like me, you stay home. That ain't what I see the Word of God says. Word of God says when I look in the mirror, I see the filthy piece of trash that I am, but I was created in God's likeness and God's image, and the blood of Jesus Christ washed away all my sins, and I'm still filthy and, and ought to go to hell and deserve to go to hell now, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, he looks over here and he sees me spotless white, and he calls me a child of the living God. They did the same thing in the synagogue that the church is doing today. The church is killing itself from within. With their rules and restrictions. You want a rule? Here it is. From in the beginning to amen. If you find it in here, preach it, teach it, stand on it. Don't waver, don't give, don't bend, don't back down. Preach it all the way till Jesus comes. If it ain't in here, shut your mouth and keep it to yourself. It ain't nothing but a man's opinion. And I've heard about all the opinions I want. This is the book. This is the standard. This is the regulation. This is the truth. This is the word of God. Nothing else matters. If you don't like it, I don't care. If you, if you, listen, I had a, a conversation this week. I'm sorry. I have nothing against a homosexual. I love them the same, but I have a problem with their sin. You cannot bend this book to fit your life. You got to bend your life to fit this book. It's not an ultimate, li ultimate lifestyle. It's a sin. Man dressing like a woman's a sin. Woman living like a man's a sin. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. I don't care. It's not my law. It's the book. It's the Word of God, but here's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter how far you've gone or how stray you've gotten. All it takes is one turnaround of the prodigal son to say, I will go into the Father's house, and he will meet you. Fall on your neck. Put the family ring on your finger. A robe on your back. And kill the fatted calf and rejoice, for my child which was lost has come home. Well, I have no idea what I was preaching on. But I was having a good time for a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah. I left off back there about that women wearing makeup. See, I got out of the scriptures right then. I took a left turn at Albuquerque. I had a woman ask me one time, Judgment Journey. Revelation chapter 5, the Bible says, And I saw the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the books and to loose the seals thereof? And I, John, wept much, for there was no man found worthy to open the books or to loose the seals thereof. And he begins talking about, and I quoted all of Revelation chapter 5. And this woman, obviously a Pentecostal, hair all done up a bun, a little short elder lady, dressed to the ground, comes up, and she says, how can you stand there dressed in that black and speak the word of God? I looked down and I said, ma'am, with all due respect, the color of the clothes that I have on has nothing to do with the power or the authority of the word of God, nor does it hinder the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What color of clothes I have on has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. The word is true. It's true. If I got on pink, yellow, black, green, psychedelic, it does not matter. The word of God holds true. I, I, I'm, I'm just telling you that they're, they're so condemned in it that they, she couldn't even enjoy it because I got on black. 
And, and, I, and I'm walking around being a guy, well, that's all free. The church today is bound in so many ways by legalism that, that if Jesus was angry with the Pharisees here for, for the way they're acting in the synagogue, he has to be angry with the legalism in the church. He has to be angry for, for the laws that were the burdens, the binding. Jesus came to set men free, not to bind more laws. Jesus came to give us freedom. If we're saved, we ought to act like a child of God. Not like any of you, certainly not like me. But if we're a child of God, we ought to act like a child of God. The truth is this. The law had no room for mercy. The law had no room for mercy. So Jesus fulfilled the law. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, He shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Matthew 2, 23, He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew 4, 13, Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt at Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zabulon and Nephilim, that it might be fulfilled. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus is preaching there in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the opening chapter of the sermon. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew 8, 16, when even was come, they brought him to many that were possessed with devils. He cast out spirits with his word. He healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying himself, took our infirmities and bare our sickness. Matthew 13, 34, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable he spake not unto them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Matthew 21, 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, Jesus said, Thinkest thou not, he's talking to Peter in the garden there, thinkest thou that I cannot pray to my Father and he will presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how the scriptures be fulfilled. Verse 56, he says, But all this was done that of the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled fulfilled. Mark 1.15, Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Luke 24.44, he said unto them, Jesus talking, he said, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. John 19.28, after this, Jesus knowing all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The law had no room for mercy. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. He came and fulfilled the law for us. Somebody ought to say thank you. He came to fulfill the law for you and I, no matter what you've done, no matter what I've done, no matter how bad we have messed things up in our lives, God is a God of mercy. God says, I love you as far as his arms can stretch, which is wider than creation itself. I love you this much to climb up on a cross. I love you enough to step down out of glory, to come down, to become the Lamb of God, to become the sinless Lamb of God, to become the perfect sacrifice. I love you enough to become like you, to pay for your debt, because you can't. You owe a debt that you can't pay. So I'm going to come pay a debt that I don't owe. But I'm going to pay it on your behalf to purchase your soul. Lord have mercy. Greg, Greg, y'all got to come. I'm, I'm, I'm going. If I don't get them up here and make, make y'all think I'm almost done, everybody start leaving. And I'm not really sure if I am or not. Teresa Schultz is quoted as saying, who am I to put boundaries on God's forgiveness? If God had put boundaries on his grace and mercy to me, when would enough have been enough? In other words, if God put a limit on it, which sin was one too many? Which one did I go over the line? When, when, when do I run out of grace? Praise God, we don't. Our God is a God of mercy. Don't let the devil hold your past against you. Don't, don't let the devil use your mistakes against you. God knows we're people of mistakes. That's why Jesus came, to pay for our mistakes. I can tell you this. If you've confessed your sins to God, 
and you have asked God to cleanse you in the blood of Jesus Christ, and shed mercy on your soul, whatever it is you remember, he forgot. Whatever it is the devil's throwing up in your face, God don't remember. Separated as far as the east is and the west, never to be brought up again. God's already cleansed it. Hebrews chapter 8 says in verse 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Brian Stevenson said, The power of mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. I need to say that again, don't I? The power of mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. But as Christians... We're also to be merciful. Remember, we were just there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We, we started a little bit after the Beatitudes. If you back up just a few verses, verse 7, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus told the disciples, freely you have received, freely give. As a church, well, if we could learn to extend the same kind of mercy to others that God has extended to us, we could love the world all the way back to Jesus Christ. We could love the world in a way they don't understand. We could love the world in a way that doesn't make sense to them. How many of you, it makes sense to you that God loves you as much as he does? doesn't make sense to me that God would love me so much that while I was yet a sinner on my worst day, Jesus Christ came. That, that kind of love doesn't make sense to me. Boy, if we, if we could just pray, pray. God, give me your eyes. There's a song, give me your eyes, Lord. Give me your heart, Lord. Boy, if I just had the eyes of Jesus to look out there on that world, if I could just see the lost the way Jesus sees them with love and compassion, if I could just see those who have made a mistake the way Jesus sees them and with mercy and grace and forgiveness. Well, if we could just see things, if we could just see people the way Jesus sees them, we could change the world for the glory of God. If we could see the lost world of such were some of ye, if we could see them as what God saved us from instead of them being different from us, the only difference between them and us is one drop of blood, one moment of grace, one act of mercy. When God washed away all my sins. Boy, if we could just we could just pray and ask God to give us the kind of mercy and, and, and be like him. Grace Johnson, not, not little Grace Johnson, used to be a member here, Grace A. Johnson. She's the author of a series of books called The Daughters of the Seven Seas. But she said, grace is not merited. Forgiveness is not earned. Love is not bought. Each are given freely by the one who can. But freely we've been given. Freely we ought to give. Raise your hand in here if you deserve forgiveness. Raise your hand in here if, if you've earned God to forgive you. Or if, if you've bought God's love. Grace is not merited. Forgiveness is not earned. Love is not bought. Each are given freely by the one who can. God has, has given us mercy, but he's told us to be merciful. Remember the, remember the, the Pharisee, the publican? Remember how the religious one prayed? Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not that bunch of heathens, adulterers. And then he tries to tell God what he does is if God doesn't know. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all my money. You might as well not if that's your attitude. That old publican says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. <laughs> Wouldn't so much as even look up toward heaven because he saw himself so bad. And God said, that's the one that will go justified. That's the one I see. That's the one I hear. We're supposed to treat other people the same way God does us. Here in our text this morning, Jesus doesn't call this man up to heal this man. That's not what this story is about. Jesus could have healed him anywhere, anytime. There are millions of miracles that Jesus did. The Bible says the things Jesus did that the, the, book, the world couldn't contain the books that they were all written. 
He did not bring this up to heal this man. He brought this up to teach everyone present that day about the mercy of God. And he had it recorded in his book. He had the Holy Spirit write this story down so that more than 2,000 years later, sitting in LaGrange, Georgia, a bunch of people in Faith Baptist Church could see the mercy of God, could see the goodness of God, could see the love of God. The, the love that wasn't just trying to heal that man, he was trying to heal the Pharisees. He wasn't trying to stretch out a man's hand. He was trying to get the soul of the Pharisees into heaven for eternal life. This isn't about a hand. This is about a soul. And Jesus is doing everything he could to minister to these people. And he had it recorded to put here so that we might study so that we might learn to be merciful like he's merciful. To put away laws and traditions of men and stand on the two commandments. Love God. Love thy neighbor. And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I want to ask if you would, if you just stand where you are. Billy Graham said, God's mercy and God's grace gives me hope for myself and for our world. God's grace and God's mercy. I'm going to ask if we could pray together this morning. We pray often, God, help us to live a life that people would see Christ in us. We pray that way. Everybody pray that way every day. We pray that way every day. We pray that way every morning. God, help me that somebody sees Christ in me today. Help me to walk a life today, God. Help me to keep my mouth shut and that people see Christ not in the words that I speak but in the life that I live. Help, help me on this day to live a life pleasing to you. Well, that's the same thing is, is give me your eyes, Lord. Give me your heart. Give, give me eyes to see. Give me, give me a heart to understand the brokenhearted. Help me to see people the way you see people today so that I might live a life pleasing to you so that others might see Christ in me and through me. That's not going to come by a two-minute devotion a couple days a week. That's, that's not going to come by a sermonette on Sunday morning. That's going to come through much prayer. That's going to come through desire. That's going to come through seeking God. On our behalf, God, help us to be merciful. So I want to ask you, if you would, to pray wherever you're comfortable. I love the altar. Altar is a great place to pray. If you can come to the altar, I'm going to ask you to come there. If you're more comfortable or you need to protect yourself in this day and age we're in, stay where you're at. It's, it's the position of the heart, not the position of the body. I get that. But if you're comfortable, come on down. I want to ask if you would, if you bow your heads where you are. And I want to ask everybody in here, can we pray in one accord? God, help us to be merciful. Help us to be like you. Help us to see people for where they are. Help us to love even the Pharisee. Help us to love them all the way to the grave. Give them every opportunity to know Christ. Help us to love our enemies, to pray for those that spitefully use us and persecute us and say all manner of evil against us. Help me, God, to live a life that people could see Christ in it. That's not, that's not something we're going to get without prayer. We just all pray together. Go ahead and sing, guys.